This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor life, nor death, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. Give you a few moments of silent prayer, so if you need to use 1 John 1, nine, silent confession of sin to God. Our sin is nobody's business but, uh, but the Lord's. So in the privacy of our priesthood, we can confess our sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's uh, begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then we'll open in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that we have you to come to, that you have, in your grace, provided a perfect salvation for us. A salvation that is not dependent upon anything that we do, but is totally dependent upon what you have done. That you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, undiminished deity and true humanity for all eternity, to die on the cross for our sins, that he is the eternal Son of God. He died on the cross for our sins that we might have eternal life. And Father, we thank you that he has now sent forth his Spirit who indwells us and who fills us and who helps us to understand your Word. Father, now we pray that as we study your Word that we might understand these things and see how they relate to our lives and be in submission to the teaching of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Now we are studying a very important subject, the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification basically means the spiritual life, although we talk about sanctification in terms of positional sanctification, what takes place at the moment of salvation when we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. That's called position, positional sanctification because of our position in Christ. At that moment, all of our sins are dealt with. We are united with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And all of our sins are paid for, and we have eternal salvation. Nevertheless, we still have a bit of a problem, and that's called the sin nature. Just because we're saved doesn't mean we lose the sin nature. We're still as capable of sin as we ever were. There's no sin that any unbeliever can commit that a believer cannot commit. Anything an unbeliever can do, you can do, and you may do even worse. Simply because after salvation you're involved in 
spiritual warfare. You're involved in the angelic conflict. And it may just be a whole lot worse than it was before. Now, the, issue, the whole issue of spiritual life or sanctification is crucial because it is the spiritual life. It is our relationship to God. It is the process by which the believer grows from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. And so we are stopping a little bit in the midst of our study of John 15 to review the doctrine of sanctification. And we began this last time and we got about the first three or four points covered. And so we'll review that briefly before we move on this, this morning. The first point was terminology. Two words are crucial, one in the Hebrew, one in the Greek. The Hebrew is kadash. Kadash basically means to be set apart, to consecrate, to make holy. Basic definition is to set apart to the exclusive service of a deity. We get the idea of holiness from uh, common usage in churches. We think of holy as being morally pure. Except the term kadash or its various forms is not only applied to inanimate objects such as the tabernacle furniture or the temple furniture, which of course can't be moral or immoral, but its roots, the masculine form, the masculine noun, the feminine noun, were applied to the male and female temple prostitutes in the fertility religions of the ancient world. And they were obviously not moral or morally pure, but they are set apart to the service of their God. So that's the root meaning, that's the core meaning of holiness. When the Bible says that you are to be holy as God is holy, when it talks about God being holy, the focus is not as much on His being perfect righteousness, that's covered by the term righteousness, but it has to do with the fact that He is unique and distinct from all creation. Holiness emphasizes God's distinctiveness and uniqueness. And so when we are said commanded to be holy as God is holy, that doesn't mean that you have to go out and be morally pure, although that idea is part of it. It's secondary. The main idea is that as believers, our life is to be set apart to the service of God. Kadash means to be set apart. Hagiadzo, the Greek term hagiadzo is the verb. Hagiasmas is the noun, and hagias is the noun for holy, and that has the same idea, to be set apart, to consecrate, make holy, to be set apart to the exclusive use of God. Sanctification, then, is defined as the process whereby the believer is set apart to God for service. The process whereby the believer is set apart to God for service. This, of course, applies to what we would call the second stage of sanctification, progressive sanctification, or sometimes called experiential sanctification. First Thessalonians 4, 7 states, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, and this is the Greek word, akathosia, which refers to uncleanness. It was used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, to refer to anything that a person would engage in that was defined by the Mosaic Law as being unclean or impure. So that if you touched a dead body, if you were a mortician and you touched a dead body, then you had to go through certain ritual purifications before you could go into the temple. If you had contact with certain diseases, you could not go into the temple for a certain specified period of time, and then you had to 
perform a certain sacrifice to be ritually clean. All of this was simply a picture of the fact that sin separates us from God. And God is the one who provides the solution to cleanse us from sin so that then we can have a relationship with God and that we can serve God. And all of that, if you read through the Levitical laws in the Old Testament, you should be impressed by how many things you can do in life that cause you to be ceremonially unclean. And what's the point? The point is that man is inherently a sinner. And time and time again, we do things that we may not even think are wrong, but yet flow from our sin nature and therefore separate us from God. So there has to be some cleansing mechanism whereby the believer can be restored to fellowship. That's why the term cleansing, uh, katharizo is the verb, katharos is the noun to be cleansed. We find it in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, He is faithful and just to uh, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Katharizo, that's related. The A there at the beginning, that prefix A, is is a negative in the Greek. It's like the... English un, it means unclean, katharsia means clean or cleansed. So the point is that that's the grace recovery procedure. Is it salvation? We're cleansed positionally. We enter into union with Christ, but we still sin. We still have post-salvation sins. And how do we recover fellowship? It is through 1 John 1.9. So there you see the two different mechanisms. We covered that last time. Second point in the doctrine of sanctification is that there are three stages or phases of sanctification. And we looked at several charts, three stages of salvation, phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase one is at the cross. The moment of salvation, we are justified. Justification, I think, is the best term to use for what happens in phase one. At that instant, we are declared righteous. Now, what's, what's going on there? Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means every single human being is born a sinner. We do good things, but they are not good in God's sight. God is perfectly righteous. He is absolutely perfect. That is His standard. His righteousness is the standard of His integrity. And in order to have a relationship with God, we have to meet His absolutely perfect standard. So if God is perfect righteousness and man lacks righteousness, then God must do something to change our status. He does that by imputing to us, at the moment of salvation, God's, our Christ's perfect righteousness. It looks like this. You are born minus R. That means that you fail and fall short of God's plus R. There are, there's an infinite amount of space here between our very best. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It doesn't say all of our unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags. It says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, which means that the best that we do, no matter what it is, at our very best, at man's highest, God considers his best filthy rags. So if man is to have a relationship with God, that minus R has to be changed to plus R. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. 
Jesus Christ is true humanity, undiminished deity. I mean, true humanity and undiminished deity. As undiminished deity, he had perfect righteousness. As true humanity, he never sinned. He was impeccable. So that when you as the unbeliever put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, all you have to do is say, Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. If you trust Christ, it's not just simply stating the sentence, but it is if you believe Christ died for your sins, then at that instant, God takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and credits it to your account. That's the term impute. It's a banking term, and it means to credit something to someone's account so that when God, draw a triangle there for the Trinity, when God looks down at us, He sees not our minus R, but He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed to our account. When He sees that perfect righteousness, then His justice declares us To be just. All of the terms for justice, for righteousness, all come from the basic Greek root, decay, D-I-K-E, which have to do with justice or righteousness. So that justification means that at that instant in time, it's not a process. You don't have to go through a stage where you partake of certain rituals or morally clean up your life or anything like that. Just at that instant in time, God declares you to be just. And that is known as justification by faith. Phase two is the spiritual life. This is the process of our life from the moment we put our faith alone in Christ alone until the time that we die physically. This is our spiritual life. And then phase three is glorification when we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. Now, this is called, there are three technical terms for this, and you must understand these terms if you're going to grasp what the Bible teaches about sanctification. First of all, there's positional sanctification. This is what happens at phase one. We are identified with Christ. We receive His perfect righteousness so that we are cleansed. This is why when Jesus was talking to the disciples in the upper room, He said, you are cleansed, but not all of you. He's not talking about phase two, spiritual life, experiential cleansing. He's talking about salvation. All of you disciples, except for one, Judas Iscariot, who was not a believer, all of you are cleansed positionally at salvation. And then there is progressive sanctification. This is the process whereby the believer is conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and whereby God works in the believer to produce his character And his righteousness. This is what we're studying. This is the primary use of the term sanctification, where it's basically synonymous to the term spiritual life. Spiritual life does not mean to get in touch with your emotions. Spiritual life is not some sort of internal, subjective idea where you go off and you just meditate or empty your mind or hope you have some kind of experience with God. What we're seeing in John 15 is that the spiritual life has to do with your relationship to Jesus Christ as expressed through the Scriptures, through the Bible. So we have positional sanctification, progressive sanctification, and then third, ultimate sanctification, which is phase three, when we are cleansed from sin. Another way of looking at it is that at salvation, we are freed from the penalty of sin. 
For the wages of sin is death, the scripture says. Eternal condemnation. But the free gift of God is eternal life. So at the instant of salvation, we are freed from the eternal penalty of sin. But we still have a sin nature. That sin nature still exercises power and control over us. And it is only as we grow by means of God the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that we are able to be freed from the power of sin over us. And then it's at ultimate sanctification. When we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, then we are freed from the presence of sin. There is no longer a sin nature. Now, another way we can look at this is a blueprint. This is one of the criticisms I have, of, uh, uh, sadly, of many pastors, is they never really thought through the whole thing. They, if you don't know where you're going, how do you know how to get there? And the Bible is very clear where we're going. Ultimately, we're going to be standing at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, the evaluation judgment for every believer for rewards and for loss of rewards. And the issue is glorifying God. That is the overriding purpose of the Scripture. So if we know that's where we're going, then we have to understand how to get there. If that is the purpose for our salvation is to glorify God, and we glorify Him by what happens at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, which is based on what we do here and now in time, then the issue is, what are you doing now to prepare for then? In terms of the same phase one, phase two, phase three diagram we just used, let's break this down into phase one, salvation. Phase two, this section, we're going to go over this blueprint again, this flow chart. This all represents phase two, the spiritual life dynamics, either walking by the Spirit or living according to the sin nature. And then ultimately, phase three, when we're absent from the body and we appear at the judgment seat of Christ for either rewards and inheritance or loss of rewards. Not loss of eternal life. We have eternal life. We can never lose that. We will be in heaven, but there will be some who have rewards and some believers who don't. Now let's look at the whole chart. don't want to overwhelm you with all of the detail here. But this is the entire blueprint. This gives you a spiritual life map so that you can understand the basic dynamics of what God is doing. We start off at salvation. At salvation, we're given new life. We're dwelt by God the Holy Spirit and we're filled by God the Holy Spirit. We are filled with doctrine from the Word of God. Now, if you don't learn any doctrine, you don't learn anything of the Bible, then you're just going to be a failure in the Christian life. We begin to learn the Word of God, and we assimilate these doctrinal principles into our soul. And then God is going to test us, take us through various life situations, where we have an option of whether to apply what we've learned or reject it. This is called tests of doctrine called Tests of Faith in James 1, 2 through 4. And the idea of Tests of Doctrine, Tests of Faith, is Tests of what you believe. Do you really believe what you've learned or not? Are you really going to apply it or not? Tests of Doctrine. The issue here is your volition. V for volition. What are you going to decide to do? Every time we have a decision to make in life, it usually relates to applying doctrine or not. Are we going to handle it our way are we going to handle it according to God's principles and God's provisions of grace and God's promises? So we have two options. Now, option number one is walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. This is covered in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. 
exercise positive volition, we go through a process. It produces divine good, uh, quality of life, capacity and quality of life, and produces evidence in our life, endurance, and we advance to spiritual maturity. If we reject God's provision, then we produce sin and human good. Just because you're doing good deeds and you're living a moral life doesn't mean that it indicates anything about your spiritual life. There are a lot of people who are Christians out there who don't know anything about the Holy Spirit, and they're just producing a lot of human good. See, unbelievers can produce human good too. Morality is for believers and unbelievers. Just because you live a moral life doesn't mean you're advancing spiritually. So you have you produce sin, human good from the sin nature, and this is temporal death. It is self-destructive. You may think you're having a good time, but you are in the process of destroying yourself if you're walking according to the sin nature. This leads to weakness and instability. You may think you're stable, but God says you're not. You're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. It leads to spiritual regression and a hardened heart. Then we come to the judgment seat of Christ at death, where we are evaluated, and the human good, the human good burns up, and the result is a loss of rewards and temporary shame. The divine good survives where there are rewards and inheritance. Now, I'm going to back up a minute. See if we can go back. See, never seen it move so fast. The goal of sanctification. The goal of sanctification is to glorify God. That is our purpose in life. That's point three under the doctrine of sanctification. Point two is the stages of sanctification. And point three is the goal of sanctification, which is to glorify God. That's why we are saved. Salvation is not an end in itself. We are saved from something to something. We are saved from spiritual death, and we are given spiritual life for a purpose, for a reason. Now, that brings us to the fourth point, which is the means. How does sanctification occur? What are the means that produce sanctification? Now, if you go to some churches, they'll say the means of sanctification has to do with ritual. That if you partake of certain rituals, then that each time you do that, you get a little more grace and you advance spiritually. That is not what the Scriptures teach. We saw last time that there are two things required for sanctification, and they, in this church age, they work in tandem. In the Old Testament, all you had was the Word of God. But in the church age, from the day of Pentecost, with the advent of God the Holy Spirit, which Jesus predicted in John 14, and we studied about a month ago, with the advent of God the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, There is something unique in the church age, and that is the work of God the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the Word of God. And we go back to that episode in the upper room when Jesus is having a dialogue with a question-answer session with the disciples. And they're asking what appear to us to be some of the most uh, stupid questions that could ever be asked. Haven't they been listening for three and a half years? What has Jesus been teaching? And you have to ask the question, why did John handle it that way? Because John wants us to realize that without the Holy Spirit, they really didn't understand what Jesus was teaching. They only understood it partially. 
and that spiritual truth must be understood by means of God the Holy Spirit. So there is a, a tandem connection between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. We looked at passages in the Old Testament that showed that throughout the Old Testament, the Word of God was always the means for spiritual life and spiritual growth. And the issue was getting it into people's minds. And we saw the principle over and over again of repetition, 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 inculcating the truth into children. Parents are to be doing that with your children. We also saw the significance of government leaders. They were required to write out a copy of the Mosaic Law for themselves so that they would be clear as to just exactly what was included in the law. Now, there's no real indication that some of these things were ever actually applied. And that's why Israel fell apart so many times during their history. We looked at passages like Deuteronomy 17, 18, and 19, Deuteronomy 31, 10 through 13, Psalm 1, 1 and 2, which talked about the, the blessed man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And then when we come into the New Testament, when we come into the New Testament, we see that Jesus says that we are to be sanctified by means of truth. Your word is truth. Now here we have a chart showing this advance. The arrow going from the bottom left to the top right indicates spiritual advance. Hopefully, in your life, you are advancing upward and not downward. It's usually not that straight and uneven. It's usually a jagged line. But for the sake of optimism, we'll just have a straight line. Three stages along that path of growth, spiritual birth, spiritual adulthood, and spiritual maturity. Just as in everyday life, our goal is to be spiritually mature, to be adults, to be treated like adults and enjoy all the privileges and responsibilities that come with adulthood. The same is true in the spiritual life. Now, the area above this slanted line is shaded green to represent spiritual growth. The area below the line is shaded uh, dark gray to indicate carnality and walking in darkness. Now, at each stage, we'll put in these vertical lines uh, or these horizontal lines which indicate the fact that it's sometimes when you're spiritually uh, young, when you're a spiritual baby, you don't spend a lot of time in spiritual growth, but you do still spend a lot of time in carnality. And as you advance, you spend more and more time on the green side of the line then on the black side of the line until you reach spiritual maturity and hopefully you spend more time growing than you do in carnality. The spiritual growth is called several things in Scripture. This has to do with our fellowship with the Lord. It's defined in John 15 as in me. Jesus says, I am the true vine, the one who abides in me. Now this is important to understand this terminology or you will completely misunderstand what Jesus is saying in John 15, and this is one of the most important passages on the spiritual life in the New Testament. John 15, Romans 8, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5 are probably the most significant passages on the spiritual life in the New Testament. So in me, when Jesus says abide in me, in me is not talking about being in Christ, which is equivalent to positional truth, Phase one, salvation, is talking about a relationship or fellowship. We have to be in fellowship with Christ to grow spiritually. And then we produce 
forward momentum. Now, if we're walking according to the flesh, the sin nature, then we're out of fellowship with Christ. We're not filled with the Holy Spirit. And we are going to reverse our spiritual momentum. We're going to go backward. Now, this gives us the framework. This gives us the blueprint, the map, several different diagrams to help you understand what the dynamics are to go forward in the spiritual life. Now, Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. The command, sanctify, is based on the, uh, Hebrew, uh, the Greek word, hagiadza, means to be set apart. Now, he says to the Father in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. And the phrase there is the Greek preposition in plus the dative of the noun aletheia. Now, this is why grammar is important. A dative case can have several different meanings. But one of the primary meanings in a, in a sentence construction like this is what's called the dative of instrument. So that indicates that the instrument to accomplish the command is in the dative case. So the best translation to get the full sense here is Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them, set them apart by means of the truth. So the question is, what is the means of advancing spiritually? Here Jesus says it is the truth. Then he further defines what the truth is in the next phrase. He says, your word is truth. So it is knowledge of the word of God that is necessary in order to advance spiritually. If you don't know the Bible, if you don't know the principles of Scripture, then you cannot advance spiritually. That's the means. You have to apply those principles in your spiritual life. That's why the Scripture says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, literally renewing of your thinking. How do you renew your thinking? By learning what God says to you, and He speaks to you only and exclusively through the Bible. You don't go off into your closet. You don't go off into some spiritual retreat and and bow your head and close your eyes and wait for God to move you somehow. That's not what the Bible says. God has spoken. You don't have to go somewhere and wait for God to speak to you. You don't have to seek God's Word. All you have to do is pick up your Bible and accurately understand it, and that's the basis for advancing spiritually. It's based upon a learning process. Now, you may not realize this, but even Jesus had to learn. Hebrews says that He learned obedience by the things that He suffered. Now, Jesus is in hypostatic union. That means that He is undiminished deity and true humanity. As undiminished deity, Jesus possessed all of the attributes of deity, including eternal life. There never was a time when Jesus did not exist as the second person of the Trinity. He is eternal. No beginning and no end. Yet at a point in time, Jesus Christ is undiminished deity, the second person of the Trinity, took on humanity. He added something. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, describes what's called, that's called the kenosis passage, and it describes Jesus' addition. He takes on the form of a servant. He does not give up His deity. He takes on, He adds to it. Now, He restricts the independent use of His divine attributes while He's on earth. In other words, man didn't look at Him and see His glory. 
Man didn't look at Jesus Christ and see Him as God. They looked on Him and they saw His human body. So He is undiminished deity and true humanity. Now, as a man, Jesus Christ had to learn. In His humanity, He had to learn the Torah just like every other Jewish kid. He had to memorize Scripture. He had to sit in the classroom. He had to learn academic discipline. He had to memorize Scripture. He didn't just automatically know it. And in His humanity, He was setting the precedent, the example for us, so that He didn't just rely on His deity and go, Oh, I know the Bible from cover to cover. I have it memorized, and I'm two years old, and I'm going to spout it out for everybody. Jesus did not do that. He advanced Spiritually, Luke 2.42 says that he advanced physically and in wisdom and in favor with both God and man, which shows that he went through the normal growth process. Jesus had to learn everything. It did not come to him automatically. One passage that indicates this is Mark 13.32. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus is giving... Uh, uh, instruction to the disciples regarding the end times. It's comparable to the uh, Olivet Discourse in, in Matthew 24 when Jesus is explaining all of the details related to the second coming and the tribulation. And in Mark 13.32 he says, But of that day or hour, in terms of the second coming, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son but the Father alone. Now, this raises an interesting question. Jesus says, I don't know the answer. But Jesus is undiminished deity. That means He's omniscient. That means God, He knows everything. But He's speaking in relation to His humanity, in terms of His role as the Son of Man, His role as the Savior, that it was not given to Him by the Father to communicate that information. He could only give what the Father gave him in terms of his obedience. So he doesn't know it in his humanity. He knows it in his deity, but he doesn't know it in his humanity. So he had to learn certain things, and he did not necessarily know everything. In the same way, Adam had to learn by his obedience, but Adam failed. Adam disobeyed God, and so he failed in the process. Even Adam had to be sanctified. Even Adam, though he was perfect, had to learn. So it is a learning process. Not only that, but when we die and we're face to face with the Lord and we're in heaven, we're not going to be omniscient. God is omniscient. There is an almost an infinite amount of data out there for us to learn. If God is infinite, then there's an infinite amount of things to learn about God. We will not know that automatically when we die. When we die and we're face to face with the Lord, we have eternity when we will learn more and more things about our Lord and our God throughout all of eternity. So for the rest of our life, we're involved in a learning process here on the earth, and that just increases when we get to heaven. So for those of you who are kind of chafing at the fact that you don't really want to learn all this stuff about the Bible, well, I'm sorry, you're going to be learning about it for not only the rest of your life, but for all eternity. Jesus said to the, pray to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. It is the process of learning Bible doctrine that enables us to advance spiritually. But learning the Bible alone won't do it. There is a spiritual dimension, a spiritual dynamic that in, it must work with it, and that is the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit.
Look at Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine. Now, the construction in the Greek puts wine also in an instrumental case, a dative of instrumentality. Wine is the means. It's not the issue of this metaphor here is not control. I'm telling you, this is one of the things that came out of what was called the Keswick Movement or Holiness Movement in the 19th century that was a misunderstanding and a slight distortion of this passage. They looked at the, the metaphor here for drunkenness and they thought, hmm, when you get drunk, the wine controls you. Wine doesn't control you. The wine may influence you, but your volition is still active. It's going to be screwed up because it's under the influence of alcohol. But it's still your volition. So the term that must be used here is not control, because control indicates that I'm not in control. Something else is in control. And if I'm not in control, then I'm not volitionally responsible. And if I'm not volitionally responsible and you use the term control when you talk about this Holy Spirit filling you or controlling you, then all of a sudden you get into this mystical view of Christianity that I'm just waiting for the Holy Spirit to take over and make the decisions for me. And unfortunately, because that term was used, people get confused and they think that, well, filled with the Spirit means the Holy Spirit's going to control, so I just need to confess my sins and then somehow the Holy Spirit's just going to make the right decisions for me. But... That's false. That would deny our personal responsibility. We still have to make the decisions. See, think of it the other way. The sin nature is the source of temptation. But the source of sin is your volition. The sin nature influences you and you decide to follow it. The same thing is true of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit influences you, brings doctrine to your mind, helps you understand doctrine, but you have to decide whether to apply it or not. Volition is the key. Now, when we look at Ephesians 5.18, we read, Do not get drunk by means of wine. Now, there's a real interesting dynamic here in Ephesus. Paul's writing to the Ephesus church, and they, were, they came out of a background of pagan worship. And one of the uh, religious systems that was very popular in Greece and very popular in Ephesus was the worship of Dionysius, also known as Bacchus in the Roman system. Now, Dionysius was the god of several different things, one of which is wine. So Dionysius being the god of wine, one of the best ways to worship the god of wine is, of course, to enjoy some wine. Well, the way they would do this is they would go into some what they call sacred groves, certain uh, places up in the hills, and they would have drunken orgies and they would uh, drink copious amounts of wine and they would get drunk and then that would get them closer to the God. And the hope would be that the God would come to them and then speak through them in inarticulate gibberish. But they thought it was a divine language. Now, if you've got your thinking cap on, you've just realized the background of tongues and the confusion in Corinth. They were doing the same thing. It's a pagan concept that they were bringing with them. This was the baggage they brought with them from their pagan background into Christianity. And so when they read about the gift of tongues in the New Testament, then they thought, oh, well, that's kind of like what we were doing before we were saved, and they just 
imitated that and called it tongues and created a whole host of problems both in their generation and down through the, through the centuries. Well, what happened in Ephesus is that they were apparently doing the same thing and they were thinking that if they went out and got drunk, that wine was the means to contact the, the God and so wine is the means to spirituality. And what Paul says is, no, it's not through wine, it is by being filled by, with the Spirit. Now, an English prepositional phrase, with the Spirit, is a little nebulous. What does that mean, filled with the Spirit? Does that mean that it is the Spirit that fills me up, like I fill a cup with coffee? Or do I fill the cup with the pitcher, meaning instrument? Well, in the Greek, it's in pneumatic, in plus the dative of pneuma, which is a dative of instrumentality. If you're filled with the Spirit as the content, where I get more of the Spirit, then that would be a content preposition, and you would use a genitive. Because you have a genitive of content, but you don't have a dative of content. So the dative means it has to be taken as means. We are filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Well, what are we filled with? We are filled with the Word of God. The parallel passage to Ephesians 5.18 is Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. So what is inside of us? It is the Word of Christ. That's the content. The Holy Spirit is the means to learning the Word. It is the Word that's the content. Look at the results in Colossians 3.15. The command is, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And the results are, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So what are the results? You have singing, teaching, thankfulness. Those are the results of letting the Word of Christ richly dwell inside the thinking of your soul. Now let's go back to Ephesians 5 and look at Ephesians 5.19, which expresses the results of being filled by means of the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. You see the parallel. The results of Ephesians 5.18, being filled with the Spirit, are the exact same results of letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. So what we have is the two sides to the same coin. Ephesians 5 says that the means... For learning and assimilating doctrine is the Holy Spirit. And the content that you're filled with is given in Colossians 3.16, and that's the Word of God. You put the two together, and you see that there is a dynamic to learning the Word of God that is based on God the Holy Spirit. So God the Holy Spirit helps us then. We have to be in right relationship with Him. If we're involved in sin and carnality, then the Bible says we're grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit and that means that we've shut down this process. And so if we're not and, and that means we're not walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, which is the term Paul uses in Galatians chapter five. Now in Galatians five, Paul commands us to walk by means of the Spirit, and if you're walking by means of the Spirit, you absolutely will not, it's impossible to carry out the lust of the flesh, the lust of the sin nature. So it's either one or the other. It's either walking by the Holy Spirit or you're walking according to your sin nature. Now, whenever we sin, sin nature is in control. The only way to recover and start walking by means of the Spirit again is to, first of all, use 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins to God in the privacy of your priesthood. 
doesn't mean to get emotional about it. doesn't mean to, that you have to you know, somehow generate some feelings of sorrow. Sometimes you'll feel very sorry you did what you did. Sometimes you'll be sorry you got the consequences you got. Sometimes it's just the same old sin that you commit five or six times every single day. And so after 30 or 40 years, you, know, you just don't get all upset about it anymore. So there's no emotion. You don't have to generate emotion to impress God. God's not impressed because He knows that tomorrow you're going to do it five more times. Remember, God's omniscient. You can't pull the wool over His eyes. It just means to admit or acknowledge your sins to God the Father. and He instantly forgives us. And we are, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's operational again. And we start to walk. That's forward momentum. So the point of rebound, the point of rebounding using 1 John 1, 9, confessing our sins, is to go forward, to have forward momentum, to advance spiritually. Now, the point of all this is to produce an inner change. Fruit is not anything else but character. Fruit is not outward works. It is inner transformation of character. Jesus emphasized this, Matthew 23, 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so the outside may be clean also. And the point is you have to clean the inside. It is character transformation that comes only through the Holy Spirit. Now, most of that is review. We hit some new territory here. Works are internal. Therefore, there can be internal transformation and no external transformation. There can also be external conformity with no internal reality. Let's look at that example first. 1 Corinthians 9.15. Paul is speaking... But I have used none of these things, and he's talking about financial support for his ministry. He says, and I'm not writing these things that it be done so in my case. In other words, I'm not necessarily going to put myself in reliance upon your financial support. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. In other words, as an apostle, I have a spiritual gift, and my job under the authority of God, is to preach the gospel. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel now. Verse 17 is the point we need to pay attention to. He says, if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. That is, if I do it under the control of God the Holy Spirit, in obedience to God, I have a reward. But if against my will, if what against my will? If I preach the gospel against my will, In other words, if I'm witnessing, but I'm not in fellowship, I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. The point is, he's saying, if I do it against my will, I don't have a reward. That's what's implied there. So we can do the right thing in a wrong way and not get a reward, not have any spiritual benefit from it whatsoever. It's just wood, hay, and stubble, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It has no eternal significance whatsoever. Paul uses another example in a passage related to giving in 2 Corinthians 8.12. There he states, for if the readiness is present, that means if you want to give, if you're willing, you're ready, you're, you're advancing spiritually and the desire is there, 
it is acceptable according to what a man has. So giving is acceptable according to what you have, how much God's given you. Okay, that's the standard. It's a relative standard. It's according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. See, you may not have anything, but you may desire to give a lot more. But all you can give is a couple of bucks here and there, and that's it. Paul says, here you have fruit inside. Readiness is present. There is internal fruit in the life. There is character transformation. There is no external work. You don't have anything to give, so you can't give, but the desire is there because of internal transformation. So there we have an example in the first case of external activity preaching the gospel and no internal reality, so it's dead works. In the second example, 2 Corinthians 8.12, you have an internal transformation and no external operation. So fruit is not to be understood as external transformation. It is talking all through the Scriptures you can demonstrate that fruit production is talking about character. The fruit of the light in Ephesians 5, 6 is all goodness and truth and righteousness. The fruit in Galatians 5, uh, 20 to 22 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness. Against such things, uh, there is no problem. So, fruit is always internal production. Seventh, the byproduct. The byproduct. Now, what do I mean by the byproduct? In John 15, 11, the byproduct is joy. Joy is not the goal. My goal is not to be happy. Whenever you pursue happiness, you're in trouble and you're going to make yourself miserable. Our job is to pursue spiritual growth. And the byproduct of pursuing spiritual growth is the fruit. Now, think with me on this. If you're a gardener, you can't make that Tomato plant, I like tomatoes, tomato plants, I like to grow them, so that's my analogy. I can't make that tomato plant produce fruit. I can create an environment that is conducive to that plant producing fruit. But the tomato plant produces fruit because of the inner dynamic and metabolism of the plant. What I have to do is to provide the right nutrients in the soil through fertilizer or whatever, use a lot of miracle Grow and water, and make sure it's properly watered and uh, doesn't dry out and dry up and kill the plant. I've been known to do that too. You have to have those two dynamics. That's comparable to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Under the filling of God, the Holy Spirit, I learned the Word of God, but there is an internal dynamic then that takes over, and that's the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to produce the transformed character. I don't say my goal is to change my character and to produce the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. It's not my job to do that. My job, that what I can control, is to be filled with the Spirit and learn God's Word and let it transform my thinking. The Holy Spirit's job is to let that produce spiritual growth in me. He is that internal metabolic uh, dynamic that produces the spiritual growth and produces the fruit. All of the fruit is the byproduct of what? Of my growth. So my goal is to make sure that I'm spending maximum amount of time filled with the Spirit every time I sin, confess sin, and learning the Word of God and letting that saturate my thinking. And the result of that over time will be the fruit of the Spirit. He produces that. So all of the fruit of the Spirit, exemplified by joy in John 15 11, is a byproduct of putting your attention on abiding. That's the theme in John 15. It's abiding means fellowship with Christ. 
And then we'll get to it in John 15, 18, that the enemy, the enemy here in this passage of sanctification is going to be the uh, cosmic system, the world system. That is the whole way of thinking that characterizes the world that is at antagonism to God and His Word. And we'll get into a whole study of cosmic system and cosmic thinking when we get there. Now, let's go back and just pick up, tie up some loose ends on John 15 uh, before we go forward next time. John chapter 15. I had a call last Saturday night with some very good questions about John 15 and this vine analogy. This is a very controversial passage and misunderstood by many people. One of the reasons it's misunderstood is because the Old Testament uses a vine analogy to relate to Israel, to relate to the nation Israel. Now, I don't want this to go over your head, but this is why theology matters. If you are what's known as a covenant theologian, then you believe that the church replaced Israel. So that the churches, and in fact, you'll go back and you'll look at Israel as the church of the Old Testament. And that's false. In the Old Testament, divine analogy is used to represent the Israel. But Israel was composed of both believer and unbeliever. In the New Testament, in this passage, divine is Jesus Christ, not Israel. He's changing the, what, what the metaphor relates to. Here it's relating to Christ. In Christ, there are only believers. Now what happens is, because of their background... Covenant theologians, Lordship Salvation people who are heavily influenced by Reformed theology come along and they immediately bring with them as their, as their uh, presuppositional baggage the idea that this vine is like Israel and it includes believer and unbeliever. And so when you come to verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, they define that by verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they then interpret that as an unbeliever. This did not have a genuine faith. Well, there's two problems with that. Problem number one is that there's no concept of a genuine versus a false faith in the Gospel of John. And that's real... I'm always amazed at the naivety of some theologians and a lot of pastors. They think that just because somebody's saved, that they're going to be a wonderful person. And they go back and they go to John 2. They always go to John 2 for support for this. John 2, Jesus goes and He cleanses out the temple. He throws all the money changers out of the temple. And He performs a number of miracles. And it says in the text that because of the signs, many people believed on His name. Now, the first thing they do is they say, well, this really isn't a genuine faith because it's based on signs. They saw the miracles, so it was a shallow faith. It wasn't a real faith. And then you have to scratch your head a little bit and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about John 20, 30 and 31? In John 20, 30, Jesus says that, John says that Jesus performed many other signs. Okay, the last part of that verse says He performed many other signs. And then the next verse He says, but these are written. These what? These signs. The whole book is organized around seven signs. These signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life through His name. So wait a minute, if, if John 2, let me get this right, what you're really saying is John 2, they're not saved because it's an insufficient faith because it's based on the miracles. Well, then John just said he tells us about all these miracles so we can be saved. Wait a minute, I don't understand. 
So the first mistake they make is thinking that because it was based on miracles, it was an inadequate, therefore not a genuine faith. Second thing they say is that that Jesus says in that passage, or John says in that passage, that many believed on his name, and the technical Greek phrase there is used everywhere else in John, a true faith, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Same phrase, over and over and over again. But there, the next verse says, but Jesus, though many believed on his name, Jesus did not trust himself to them. The hidden assumption there is that because they're a believer, they should be trustworthy. I've known a lot of believers, folks. I know pastors that I would not trust to get in this pulpit. I would not trust them any further than I could see them, and I won't trust them that far. You know, to assume that Jesus doesn't trust himself to these brand new believers who don't know a speck of doctrine is the height of naivety. And it's unrealistic. Except that's the problem with most theologians there in the ivory tower and most pastors aren't in touch with reality at all. So that's the first problem. Is there's this assumption that there's these true and false faith and that's not even in John at all. And the second, and, and the second problem is they're importing this covenant theological framework that divine includes believers and unbelievers. But Jesus says, in, and the other assumption is that verse 2 and verse 5, now verse 6, represent the same branch. Their assumption is that there's two branches here. There's the branch that bears fruit and the branch that doesn't bear fruit. And the branch that doesn't bear fruit is an unbeliever. But notice, pay attention. This is why observation is so important in Bible study. Pay attention to verse 6. He says, if anyone does not abide in me. Now, we did a word study two or three weeks ago on abide, and we saw that that term is relational. It is not belief, phase one. We've already excluded that. But I want you to pay attention to what that second, uh, second phrase is. It's in me. Now, we also did a study of in me. And we saw that it's different from Paul's concept of in Christ. That every time John uses the phrase in me, it relates to fellowship. It, Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father's in me. That's not positional, judicial. That is experiential fellowship. The Son has fellowship with the Father. It's unbroken fellowship with the Father. Now, the difference between the branch in verse 6 and the branch in verse 2 is what? The branch in verse 6 does not abide in me. The branch in verse 2 is in me. He doesn't use the word abide there, but in me means abiding. So when Jesus says, I mean, when Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit... He's not talking about the branch that does not abide in me in verse 6. These are three different branches. The first branch is in me, no fruit. Second branch is in me and bears fruit. And the third branch in verse 6 is not in me and is thrown away. So we have to understand that. The other thing to understand here comes from background, understanding of viticulture, in the ancient world. Now this is interesting that twice a year the grapevines were pruned. There was a fall pruning and there was a spring pruning. Now this really helps clear things up. The spring pruning is what Jesus is referring to here initially. Why? Why do I say that? 
It's springtime. Passover. This is what's happening right now as probably while they're walking from the upper room out to Gethsemane. They're walking along the Mount of Olives, Kidron Valley, and the hillside's covered with grapevines. He's got his, his, uh, his evidence right there in front, of, in front of them, and he is teaching them by analogy with the training aid right in front of them. Now, what would happen is, according to Pliny, who's writing in the first century, what the practice was that, that there would be, in, in the, in the, on the grapevine, there were branches that did not produce fruit and branches that did produce fruit. In the springtime, the branches that did not produce fruit were preserved and nurtured so that they would strengthen into the woody stems and produce more branches the next season. Okay, you have your vine, and you have these little branches coming off of it, and some would produce grapes and have grape clusters, and some wouldn't. Well, what they would do is they take the ones that some of the ones that didn't produce fruit, and they would lift them up on a trellis and tie them up so that air could get there, and they would dry out, and they would get plenty of sunshine, and then they would grow throughout the summer so that they would develop a thick woody stem and produce more little branches from which they would get more grapes the next year. So they would tie that up so that it would be aerated and get plenty of sunshine. That's what they would do. In, in, and then, then the branches that produced fruit in the springtime that had the grape clusters hanging off of them, they had little suckers growing off of them and they would prune those back. That's the second type of branch in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This is the Greek word iro. Iro can mean and does in some context remove. And so what happens is they immediately, someone will look at that and go, oh, that means he removes it. No, it doesn't. Iro often means lift up. And so context has to decide, and especially in light of what we know from Pliny and from the Oxyrhynchus papyrus of the 2nd or 3rd century A.D., we know what the viticulture practice was. And in the spring, they would tie up these other these non-fruit-bearing branches so that they could develop big stems and produce fruit later on in the fall. The fruit-bearing branches were then pruned. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. This is the young believer who in spiritual empathy needs to be encouraged and strengthened so that he can grow and later on produce fruit in his life. This is not the carnal believer who is not abiding and is out of fellowship. This is in me. This is the young believer who's in fellowship you know, fruit is not produced automatically. It takes a long time. I don't know about uh, grapevines, how long it takes before it produces fruit, but I know with the tomato vine, it takes 60, 90 days before it will start producing tomatoes. You have a lot of growth that takes place in that time. So fruit is not automatic and it's not instantaneous, and sometimes it takes a while. There has to be a lot of spiritual growth and advance to spiritual maturity. So he takes away every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. So this is the fruit-bearing branch, and the little suckers are pruned back. So that fits the analogy of what we know from viticulture at that time. And then in verse 3, Jesus says, You are already clean. This is phase one positional salvation. Why? Because of the Word. You understood the Gospel. When I taught you that I was going to die on the cross for my sins, you believed the faith alone in Christ alone, and now you're saved. 
Abide in me and I in you. He's talking to the disciples. Now you're saved. You need to abide in me in fellowship so that you can advance to maturity and have much fruit. And then verse 5, he goes on. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's the whole point is we have to abide in fellowship with the Lord or there will be no fruit production. Abiding in Christ is the necessary condition to produce fruit in this passage. In Galatians 5, walking by means of the Holy Spirit is the necessary condition for producing fruit. Now think about that. Fruit production is the goal in John 15 and Galatians 5. In John 15, it's caused by abiding in Christ. In Galatians 5, it's caused by walking in the Spirit. If abiding in Christ is salvation, that would mean walking by the Spirit was salvation. That doesn't make sense. So walking by the Spirit and abiding have to be the same thing. It is the day-to-day experience of the believer. And then we come to verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burnt. Now, here's the point. As soon as anybody reads burning up in the Scriptures, they immediately leap to hellfire judgment. That's not what's going on here. You miss the whole point of the analogy if you think this is... And that's unfortunately what the Lordship Salvation crowd tends to do, is to pick on this, oh yeah, they're burned up, so that must mean loss of salvation, or they weren't ever saved. Well, Jesus shifts His point of reference here from the spring pruning to the fall pruning. In the spring pruning, what, what's pruned off are the little sucker branches. Now, I don't know if you've ever paid much attention to a vine, but a little sucker branch isn't going to produce much of a fire. You cut that little bitty sprig off, it's going to just dry up and wither, and you're not going to get a, after it's dried up, you're not going to get any kind of a fire off of it. What do you have in verse 6? It's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire. There has to be something substantive there. Now, what would happen is, in the fall pruning, after the grapevines have produced their grapes, after the harvest, then you come along and you, produce, you prune the main vine, which has your thick woody stems, and you cut off what's not necessary, and you trim the vine back, and then you gather that up because it's no longer usable. It's no longer going to produce fruit. And so you destroy it. And the point of the analogy is not the destruction, but the fact that these branches aren't usable because they don't produce fruit anymore. That's the point of the analogy. It's not judgment. It is uselessness. And if you don't understand the isagogical background, the history and the viticulture and all of that, you're going to just completely misconstrue the passage. So the point of all of this is to challenge the believer to abide in Christ, to walk in fellowship with Jesus Christ, by means of God the Holy Spirit, studying His Word. And that's why he concludes in verse 7, If you abide in Me, and what? My words abide in you. See, it's not apart from the Word, it's based on the Word. You can't abide in Christ if you're not letting His Word abide in you. And if you're not letting His Word abide in you, there's no spiritual growth. And that enhances your prayer life and spiritual growth. Now next time... We're going to come back and see how this 
relates to what he said in John 13, the new commandment to love, and how that relates to having maximum happiness in our life in John 15. We'll start at verse 8 next time, 8 through 17, with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that it is your grace that works in our life. Your grace initiated a plan in eternity past to provide for our salvation and our spiritual life. That plan included the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as our spiritual substitute. There he, he paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future, so that we could have eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now they would take this opportunity to make this certain. The issue is, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The Scriptures are very clear. We cannot save ourselves. Our good works are worthless. The only thing that matters is the work of Christ on the cross. And so this is your opportunity to make certain your eternal destiny. Now, Father, we pray that you would Help us to remember the things that we have studied under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we may be challenged by these things, that we may think in terms of our ultimate destiny at the judgment seat of Christ, that we may desire to move forward and advance to spiritual maturity to glorify you and fulfill your will and purpose in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.